0: Welcome to Watershed's September podcast. My name's Mark Cosgrove, and I'm the cinema curator here at Watershed. And I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Andrew Spicer from the University of the West of England, and who has written a fantastic new book, Sean Connery, Acting, Stardom and National Identity. So welcome, Andrew. Hello, Mark. Purely by coincidence, and this was not by design, we are recording this in August on what would have been the 92nd birthday. Of Sir Sean Connery.
1: That's right. We didn't plan that, did we? No, an amazing coincidence. Yeah,
0: but the way I found out is that um, Pinewood Studios have just announced that their new studio is going to be called the Sir Sean Connery Studio. Oh
1: wow! I didn't realize that.
0: Which is testament, really, one of the many things that you talk about in the book in relationship to Connery, but his incredible stature in the film world, which is obviously still very present today, by you know the kind of acknowledgement from Pinewood there.
1: Yeah, I I think his stature was measured in in lots of ways, really. I mean, when he was Bond, he was the only British actor who was in the Quigley top 10, and then he came back in the the 80s and 90s after the Untouchables, so he was back up there again. So he's the only British actor of his generation, and really almost any other generation, who was paid the sort of same salaries as the big Hollywood stars. So there was always that kind of economic status that he wanted. The other status, obviously, was... um, the status as as an icon. And I think that one of the things about writing the book was to kind of talk about Connery's iconic status as being more than playing James Bond, more than being the first Bond. And the thing is, Pinewood is obviously a nod to Bond, uh, which
0: which he will forever be linked with for good reason. As you say he was the first and for many he well he, he shaped the image of bond but what your book talks about because the, the theme of the season that was put on is beyond bond yeah and what you do is is talk about connery out with the kind of bond if you said sean connery to most people they'd say oh james bond yeah um yeah, yeah, and yeah. you would think that he came fully formed yeah as james bond but as you again describe in your book he had a life before bond
1: yeah and and that's one of the reasons why he was, he was annoyed in some ways about playing Bond, I'll come back to that in a second. But he doesn't, he doesn't have the conventional route into acting. He's not middle class, he's not English, he's not from London, mm. he doesn't go to RADA or any of the big drama schools. So he gets the bug <laughs> in a kind of curious way. Somebody tells him that they're hiring people for a touring version of South Pacific, yeah. and they want people who are over six foot tall and well built, so he goes along and gets the part and so he tours for about I think fourteen months mm. with that production.
0: He hadn't had any formal stage training or dancing, or but he had the physique.
1: He had the physique. He he done bodybuilding. He'd done weightlifting. He'd been a lifeguard. He'd been uh, posing as uh, in life classes mm. and so on and so forth. He was a footballer, mm. uh, amateur footballer. So so he was very athletic. He was beautifully built. He was I think he got some bronze medal at the Mister mm. Universe contest in 1953. So he had that athleticism and he had that build. Uh, and also everyone says, uh, who worked with him on that production and subsequently, is he moved beautifully for a big man. Mm. And I think that's true of his role in Bond and many many mm. other films. You can see the power, but you can also see the grace. Mm. So he, he gets the kind of acting bug in South Pacific. He has a mentor called Robert Henderson who says, one of your great advantages is to look like a truck driver and have that build, and yet you don't sound like that. You know, mm. you, you're quite sensitive. You've got this vulnerable side. So I think that duality goes throughout Connery's entire mm. career. But in terms of his training, doesn't really start in a sort of serious way, I think. I mean, he, he does some roles uh, in rep. He does a bit of work on uh, for the BBC, but it doesn't really start in a serious way till he meets... Diane Chalento, who became his first wife. Mm. And she said, Well, your accent is still difficult to understand. Of course, you yeah. know. Famously born in Edinburgh, son of Edinburgh, yeah. place that he
0: would always sort of go back to, yeah. similarly with Scotland. Yeah. And at that time, I would imagine there would have been pressure to to have received pronunciation, you know, to do that very English elocution, mm. the actors that would have been part of the sort of acting environment, which as you say, he's, he, he kind of resisted and drew on his own um, vernacular.
1: That's true. And, and some actors who, who went to RADA at that time talk about having their local accent ironed out. Roger Moore talks about, you know, not mm. speaking with a London accent, but mm. received pronunciation. But Connery's part of that generation, Michael Caine, Albert Finney and so on, who, who resisted that. Mm. I mean, Caine didn't go to RADA, but Finney did. Mm. But he, he retains his kind of northern bounds. Mm. So I think, I think Connery's part of a kind of working-class statement. You know, we're becoming more important as a, mm. as a generation. But, of course, uh, that's easy to say in retrospect. But at the time, um, the BBC, for instance, are quite resistant to to a Scottish accent. And <laughs> I did some work in the BBC's written archives uh, that have these kind of audience reports about some of his television work. And, and they say, oh, we thought... Connery was wonderful, but I'm you know, not sure about the accent. Yeah. But for him, it was incredibly important. To he talks about the music of my home tune. He talks about his identity being indissoluble from, from that yeah. Edinburgh accent. And he said, if I if I gave that up and it's like I started to talk like you're supposed to as an actor, yeah. that I would lose lose my emotional connection with the characters I'm playing. Yeah. I would lose myself. Yeah. I would become a sort of speaking. Mm. You know, thing. So he pra- he practices. He he buys a quite expensive tape recorder, and he practices. So he wants to retain his accent, but to to get clarity. Because mm. so there were, there are a couple of people on the South Pacific tour who said, "Is he polling? <laughs> <laughs> I've had that problem. <laughs> and I think when he meets Gilento, she she talks about that. She also says, "Go and talk to Cicely Berry. He was the RSC's." Elocution coach, so he's prepared to do that, mm. but not. But Barry's not trying to sort of eradicate mm. that accent, but mm. to kind of get him to use it more expressively. And the other thing he does is he works uh, these private classes with the uh, Yat Malmgren, who was a Swedish dance teacher, essentially. So he works on movement, uh, how to move his body, and how what he talks about as commanding space. Mm. But also, um, Malmgren's classes were also about Rounding yourself in, in an understanding of literature. So, Connery left school at 14, famously, became a coffin polisher, went into the Navy, so had very little formal education. So, he thinks, Well, I really need that. So, he reads Proust, he reads Shakespeare, yeah. he reads all the classics, yeah. reads Ibsen, so on and so forth, because he's now moving with people who, who know those. Yeah. He wants to kind of talk to them about yeah. those, things. Yeah. and he also wants to kind of understand the the big world of, of literature which again is i mean it was something that i wasn't aware of in terms of that
0: thinking about it all happened with bond you know i mm. mean I, I hadn't really been aware fully you know the the shorthand history of yeah you know big tam from edinburgh goes yeah. to south pacific yeah maybe did a bit of television and then yeah and then it's james bond but you yeah. don't get that sense of somebody who wants to find out how it works what the culture is mm. you know what the 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 kind of wider world as you say holding on to mm. his own source but also that kind of wider world
1: um, of culture yeah and uh, you know Connery Conner is often talked about as you know being very money oriented but he, he was prepared to play a role at the Oxford Playhouse and turned down a part in in quite a substantial part mm. in El Cid mm. and he's he's at the Oxford Playhouse on sixty quid a week or something mm. because he wants he wants to to play classical roles yeah. and, and El said would have been one of the kind of biggest budget yeah. films that it was being been, made in Hollywood film
0: being made in Europe.
1: Yeah. Huge opportunity for him yeah. to get himself known out there internationally. And I think the other the other thing uh, that people always kind of elide about the early work is they think it's somehow a preparation for Bond. But what I tried to, to bring out in the book is that actually a lot of the roles he's playing are very non-Bond roles. They're yeah. not roles where you think oh you know that's Mm -hmm. that's bond in embryo or bond in waiting kind of thing it's interesting because what i get a sense of is you know
0: bond actually
1: took him down a different path yeah,
0: that he, you know he he would have gone on a different route and yeah. still have been a great actor, yeah. but maybe have been more you know stage orientated yeah. or more independent. You yeah. know, as you, as you say, with the the working class actors that were coming through that kind of gritty British realism at that time. You know, like Richard mm. Harris, mm. Michael Caine, you mentioned. Mm. You know, that, that Connery would have gone through that as well and have been as as great an actor, mm. but, but Bond arrives
1: mm. and yeah. everyth- and everything changes. Yeah, everything changes completely. One has to be careful about describing his role as Bond because you can kind of invest it too much with he was always reluctant to do it, and that's not true at all. Mm. He saw it as a huge opportunity, huge opportunity for it.
0: But, but let's, let's just go back and think,
1: mm. if we can,
0: Bond hadn't happened. It was, mm. it was still Ian Fleming's yeah. Bond. It was still on the written yeah. page. And this film is going to be coming out that's the first, James Bond, with this relatively unknown actor. Yeah. And uh, this part of me thinks he got the role as well because, frankly, he was cheap. Yeah. So there mm-hmm. wasn't a star status within the budget that had to be at a certain level. This what, this isn't the Bond that we're thinking mm-hmm. about Daniel Craig and you, you, you know the, the whole franchise. This is the first mm-hmm. film which may or may not lead to another film and to another film.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I, absolutely. United Artists are very worried about 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 the film. They pegged the budget just under a million dollars. which is Mm. pretty low. I mean, they wanted it made in colour and so on and so forth Mm. and some location work in Jamaica. But they wanted costs kept down. And Connery has this brilliant story about they're trying to get the last shot of the day and there's Cubby Broccoli shoveling sand, you know, on the beach. He says, he hasn't done that (laughs) since (laughs) that time. But it's it's a brilliant indication of how it was kind of Altogether. So he's paid, I think, about £6,000, which is pretty low. I mm. mean, for instance, Peter O'Toole gets 42000 for Lawrence of Arabia. So you get some idea mm. of what, uh, you know, even the sort of British star gets. And also um, there's a sense, I think, of will it work? Mm. Because it's quite different from the, from the Fleming. I mean, obviously the story is there, but not the character. Because if you read Fleming, Fleming calls him a blank slate. He says he's mm. just something I like, pin the action around him. You're not supposed to like him terribly, mm. but Connery creates this character who's who's very different. I think, mm. you know, got got that commanding authority, the threat mm. that that they felt he wanted, but also he's got this mm. wonderful droll humour which isn't in the novels mm. at all.
0: And I know that uh, later on he always wanted to have oversight of the script mm. and of um, dialogue and of mm. character. He was very. And we can mm. come on to some of the the issues with Sean Connery in terms of his wanting to control things. Yeah. But but <laughs> was, was he at that stage? And again, it goes back to the reading. I think. I mean, he mm-hmm. you know, he he had read all this work, so he was building within himself a sense mm. of the craft and the yeah. art of you know whether it's script writing, dialogue, performance, all of this. And he seems in later films want to implement some of that or get it right as far as he sees it. Did he do that in the original Bond?
1: Well, he's got a certain amount of control because um, he's working with the director, Terence Young, before they go out to Jamaica. So it's a question of who you believe, really. I mean, Diane Chilento said, oh, I wanted him to be a humorous Bond. Connery said, no, that was my understanding. Terence Young said, no, I brought that to the mm, Bond. Mm. But whoever starts it, the, both of them work on, on that character. Mm. and and young said everybody says this about connie's very quick study mm. gets it straight away and then he mm. works with that so he's got that kind of control i think before the actual filming begins so he's got a sense of that character and how he wants to play it because for him bond was a, was not realism at all mm. and in order he thought to get get that fantasy you know accepted you had to kind of have a certain detachment from it mm. so <laughs> you know mm. it, Bond, Bond is you know a character who he's got this kind of flippancy. Yeah, there's an irony. There's a self-knowingness yeah. even then. Yeah.
0: I mean there's an awareness of of yeah. what. But I I sort yeah. of think it's funny that the season's called Beyond Bond. Yeah, and there's us spending all this time talking about Sean Connery's James Bond.
1: Um, and it's I mean that's the power though of the Bond yeah. image and the franchise. Yeah. yeah. So I'll say one more thing about about Bond. Uh, there's a huge struggle within talking about you know what he wants to control or not he wants to be a partner because he thinks he's really important to the franchise broccoli and sourcemen don't they -hmm. think you're an actor you can be replaced Mm -hmm. importance is bond and the formula Mm -hmm. we're kind of creating around that so there's that economic struggle going on the other struggle is around where the series is going which he thought Mm -hmm. too many gadgets Mm. too many stupid explosions, Mm. nothing about the character. Mm. So he's dissatisfied with the screenplays after Mm. Goldfinger. Mm. But also at the same time as that's going on, he's trying to make his mark as not Bond. Mm. So he appears in Hitchcock's Marnie. Mm. I mean, he didn't instigate that. Hitchcock Mm. wanted him. He he wanted Bond.
0: Hitchcock wanted... Um, Connery for, for Marnie yeah. because of seeing him
1: as Bond. Yeah, he saw certain things in Connery, or he saw in the role that he wanted Connery to play in Marnie, um, a, ki- a kind of um, Bond uh, with with this kind of psychological depth. Mm. Well, what happens if you do make Bond a kind of realistic character? Mm. What happens to that control and that power and that... Mm. Desire to dominate. Mm. What what's really the basis mm. of it? So so Connery is is asked to create this character of Mark Rutland, very different from, from Winston Graham's novel of Marnie, mm. which is I think we've talked about this before. Really complex, really disturbing.
0: Mm. <laughs> mm, <it's> very disturbing. <laughs> lots of, actually, lots yeah. of depths to it. Yeah,
1: and as he said, you know Hitchcock told me how to where to move and where I was where he was going to place his camera. But he never talked to me about the psychology of the role, mm-hmm. so I think Connery is bringing a lot of himself into understanding mm-hmm. this very complex male character. Mm-hmm. Who, of course, audiences didn't like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was the problem about Marnie. That that, that a lot of, a lot of the reviewers at the time said, "Hang on, this isn't the sort of witty Hitchcock film that we we thought but, we were getting." But
0: also, it's not sean connery that we, that we love in, in no. that bond
1: film no yeah he's not whacking somebody through a wall and yeah laughing about it yeah you know this is this is the disturbed. This has character. got a bit it's got a bit more serious yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah bond
0: obviously catapults connery into a different league because of the success yeah. of those films yeah. and and then all sorts of complications arise mm. around authorship as you mm. as you've said and he gets into Famously into disputes with Cubby Broccoli, and the, yeah. the but he, he knows he's, you know, Bond's there now, yeah. but he wants to go under, around it, <laughs> above it, you know, he wants to get outside of Bond. And as you say, he's doing, he starts doing other work. Yeah. And these are the films that we're going to be showing in the season that we've put on to accompany the book. The first one um, is The Hill, which I know that Connery talks about as being one of his um, favourite films, mm. one one that he's kind of most. Most proud of, which was sixty-five. Yeah, which is which is right in the the middle of all the bond. Yeah, you know su- yeah. success. Yeah,
1: there were lots lots of moving tributes in Connery's obituaries. One of the most moving was Jackie Stewart, who saw him quite close to his death. He was a very close friend. Mm. This is the, the Scottish racing, racing driver. Race, yeah, yeah. Race, racing driver. He said, um "Will you watch the hill with me?" And, and Jackie Stewart watched watched the film with him. Really, I, and then I didn't know he, that. Yeah. he came back the following day, and Connery said will you watch The Hill with me? Because he didn't remember by uh, that stage yeah, yeah. That, that, that they just watched it. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's a film he's incredibly proud of. And very, very deliberate, I think, what people call a sort of anti-Bond film. So how can I appear? How can, how can I show audiences that I can really act away from the smart suits and the glamour mm. and the women? Mm. So he's in a prisoner of war camp, he's, he's a disgraced... Well, it's, all, it's all major. men. It's, it's an it's all-male all environment. Yeah, it is an all-male environment. It's, it's, it's grueling. Mm. I mean, it's with Sydney and Met, who's a, an actor's mm. director. Mm. Um, it's naturalistic li- r- lighting. Black and white. Black and white. Mm. Um, and uh, 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 and it, it's about the power struggle between the officers in charge of the camp and, and the, the group of prisoners. Who are made to run up this ridiculous artificial mm. mound in the blistering heat because it's kind of, you know, uh, a way of punishing them and disciplining them and so on and so forth. So, Connery is saying, Look, I haven't got my bond wig on. Um, you know, I've got, got I'm crop haired. I've got a little moustache. Uh, I'm a working class guy. Uh, I'm very Scottish. Mm. I'm dressed in khaki. Mm. Uh, all those kind of things. And, I'm, and, I, and I'm mad as hell. Um, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but it's that anti-authoritarian yes.
0: thing. What he's mad at is the institution yeah. of the army and yeah. the, the ridiculous systems yeah. that they set in play yeah. in order for people yeah. to go out and be part of this
1: yeah. force. So you've got this wonderful paradox, I think, with The Hill, that they could only raise the money to make that kind of film on the strength of We Got Connery. Mm. Um, on the other hand, it's a film that, that Warner Brothers, that, that the parent studio, don't really like, don't really know what to mm. do with. But Connery said, yeah, but it was entered as the British film for Cannes, the Cannes Festival. Mm. You know, it showed me as a, as a really serious, different kind of actor. So I don't care what it makes at the box office, whether the other people appearing in it were quite so blasé, I think. But, but for Connery, and I'm earning a shed load of money as Bond. I want to show you I can act yep. in a different role. Yeah.
0: And, and then as time goes on, he's obviously getting older. He's, he's not um, that life graceful figure that he was in in the early uh, bond films and he, he begins to sort of come out from under the shadow of the bond franchise i guess and with a film like robin and marion mm. um another one that was we're, we're screening um and the man who would be king which, mm. which which with both of those films you really do get a sense of him in a way having fun Actually, mm. I think that what he communicates in yeah. the films is a kind of release in a way. Yeah. And somebody who's very comfortable with you know the age that they are—they're not the over, yeah. hill, the over the hill Bond. Yeah. They're actually kind of he's, hes beginning to mature as a as an actor.
1: Yeah. I think there are lots of things going going on there. The first maybe is that there's uh, a group of films. I mean Zardoz, which I think is totally weird. Yeah, we have to acknowledge but, Zardoz actually in the, but, the nappy, the the, but, the the red nappy. But John Bowman says how extraordinary that somebody will run around uh, the Irish countryside in an arctic spring, as he said, dressed only in, his, in a red nappy. Yeah. Only Connery would do that. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of testament to it. And nobody but, would question him. No, <laughs> no. But there's this, you could call it a trilogy, but they're all they're all made by different companies of the wind and the lion, and the two the two in the season, yeah. the man who would be king and Robin and Marion. So they're, they're all films, as you say, where... Connery is comfortable being older men. He's comfortable in costume. He's comfortable in period drama. Mm. Uh, and, and he's comfortable playing uh, people who actually, when you think about it, are in many respects quite stupid. Mm. Uh, and Richard Lester, who directs Robin and Marion, said, well, Connery is one of the few stars, he said, who, who can play naivety and innocence, mm. Mm. strong innocence, mm. Lester puts it. He said, that's very rare in an actor. Mm. He said that usually a big star like Connery would be much more protective. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I I wouldn't say that, or my character wouldn't do that. Mm. But Connery goes with those characters and and produces these extraordinary performances, I think. Mm. So, I mean, of the three, his favourite was the man who would be king. And that's, what a role. I mean, he's this sort of ex-gunnery sergeant going around India as a con man with Michael Caine. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. And, then, and then he suddenly... who um, begins to believe his own myth. Yeah, he suddenly believes he's the second Alexander, yeah. uh, the, you know, the God King. And, and, and he starts to rule this little nation in Kafiristan. And he says, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll civilize them. I'll make them a great nation. Mm-hmm. And then I'll go to talk to Queen Victoria. And he says, I'll stand. I won't kneel. I'll talk to her as an equal about the great nation I've created. Mm-hmm. So it's this wonderful study in naivety, hubris, strong innocence, uh, and so on. All the time, they're a wonderful pairing. All the time, Cain is retaining mm. this kind of cockney skepticism. Well, that's clear out with the loot, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then in Robin and Marion, of course, famously, he's not Douglas Fairbanks or Errol Flynn dancing over battlements and mm. dashing around with sword. He's this aging, creaking warrior <laughs> come back from the Crusades, disillusioned, yeah. who, who stumbles into the old... Sort of out of time and yeah. out of place and yeah. out, out of sorts. Yeah, stumbling yeah. into his old colleagues, Will Scarlet. And he says, yeah, wh- wh- what, a mm. legend? I've become a legend. Why? <laughs> there's, there's a great scene, I always remember it, from
0: uh, Robin and Marion when, when they're in the encampment in the forest Yeah, and Marion's with them. And, and they wake up in the morning and it's just them sort of waking up mm. and, and you sense an old man waking up in yeah. and Rob and he's, he's not quite with it, he's no. not, you know, and, and no. you just get that sense of him yeah. playing with the character and the yeah. age that the character is and yeah. the physicality.
1: Yeah, in that scene there's that wonderful moment where he starts to hitch his smock up and he thinks, oh, God, there's a woman here. I yeah. can't do that. <laughs> that's, I have to that's wander right. off yeah, for yeah. a pee somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. And that's not in the script. I right. looked very carefully at William Goldman's script. And, and Lester, I think Connery liked this, I was happy for him to improvise yeah. and so on and so
0: forth. Which introduces the
1: elements to the character that makes the character more rounded mm. um, and kind of more honest. More rounded, more honest, and much more sort of appealing because he's yeah. quite vulnerable. He's always looking for her approval, uh, Audrey Hepburn has made Marion's approval. Yeah. But,
0: but not the traditional star role, no. male
1: star role, which no.
0: which he he sort of comes on to later on. And the final film in the series is The Rock, mm. directed by Michael Bain. um, You know, it's one of those films that whenever it comes on, you start watching it and you just can't stop watching yeah. it. You've got to watch it yeah, all the way yeah. through. But he's, he's now, as you describe, he's now the kind of sort of almost father figure. He's, mm. he's become probably post The Untouchables when he wins the Oscar for, for that yeah. role in The Untouchables. That he becomes the grand man of hollywood cinema and he plays a much more knowing but authority figure rather than the kind of um naive innocent mm. that he was in those in mm. those films from the 70s
1: yeah i think um economically um there's quite shrewd casting in, in a lot of those films uh, so you've got Connery as what I call the father mentor, mm. the older man, full of wisdom, still still authoritative, still in command, got that same ironic humor, same as sort of slightly abrasive relationship. Uh, and you've got this uh, sort of succession of surrogate sons. So in The Rock, it's um, Nicolas Cage. Mm. Mm. In The Untouchables, it's Kevin Costner. And um in The Hunt for Red October, it's Alec Baldwin. Mm-hmm. And they're all kind of, who is this old guy who's bossing me around? But over the course of the film, gradually, mm-hmm. they think, oh, wow, he, you know, he, he <laughs> in a way, he's still James Bond. He's still hes still that kind of uh, confident character. Still, He's still quite athletic in those films. Mm-hmm. I mean, carefully contrived, I'm sure, but still looking mm-hmm. quite athletic. The films enable him to kind of Still be a major star, but also um, not have to carry the whole film in mm, quite mm. the same way. So, so, playing off against the qualities of, of the younger actor who's. And, who's and in also, in all,
0: all of these films, and I was thinking, as you're speaking, I was thinking, of course, Indiana Jones. He's Indiana Jones's father. Exactly. Um, exactly. But, he's a, he, but he's always a learned character. Yes. You know, he's always a well read. Yeah. You, you feel as though he's playing chess with people. He's kind yeah. of one step. So he's, he's always got that element to his character, which is the cultured, well-read um, person.
1: Yeah, and that goes back to what we were saying about those early roles in acting, where he was desperate to read as much mm. as he could. And that goes through him all through his life. At the Lifetime Achievement Award, I think he says, well, do you, do you know the most important thing that happened in my life? I, I, I suppose everyone's thinking, oh, when you became Bond, mm. he says, no, when I learned to read. Yeah, right. yeah, that's yeah. what he says. And Mark Cousins, who does that brilliant scene by scene with Connery, says that idea of the man who acquires culture gradually mm. and carefully is really, really central to Connery. And you think about the the penultimate film, Finding Forrester. He's he's another kind of, you mm. know, he's a writer who wants to kind of mm. talk to an, another surrogate son mm. uh, about learning and mm. books and culture. Mm. So that's very, very important to Connery. yeah and and what's also part of the characters i think if you you,
0: you know his backstories is that they, they often their working class roots they, mm, they yeah. also have come from so yeah. is it where what you're what you're seeing is is connery's background coming through yeah that, that consistency or authenticity rather mm. that authenticity to the working class roots the self-educated mm. you know the kind of wider culture which is why when you watch the films at times i think in the later ones, you think, am I watching a character or am I watching Sean Connery? Mm. And they, they blur, uh, you know, the characters become Connery and Connery becomes the character.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and if you look at the early interviews when he's playing Bond, he softens his Scottish accent, he's slightly stiff in those interviews, mm. he's slightly conscious of, you know, mm. what, what am I supposed to say? Mm. When he gets older, I think he's totally confident about mm. being in the film, being himself, mm. And talking, talking about his films, mm. talking about himself, talking mm. about. So, so you're right. It becomes it becomes a whole. I would say to anybody who's listening is is to watch the Mark Cousins interview. It's
0: on YouTube. They go to Mark Cousins' flat, and it's in Edinburgh, of course. And yeah. you do get a sense of somebody who's very ease with their body work, their background. You know, is somebody who's kind of feels ease in their skin. But mm. but you know what we've not touched on is that he was not without his. Complication, and yeah. you know, I mean, he was litigious. Yeah. Um. You would not mess with Sean Connery. Was the message that you that you got? And there was a really problematic relationship with women that he was very recalcitrant in his views. In interviews, he, he was quite um upfront about it, which which sets on which sits uneasy with this um self educate. You know, the education that he gave himself. And then what seems to be a kind of very uneasy relationship with women
1: yeah, it sits uneasily with with some of his best roles, you know, so R- Robin is vulnerable, mm. he's trusting, mm. he wants marion's approval he wants he wants love uh that's true of the Russia House, which I think is a very very good mm. film where he's the same kind of male character who's not quite confident uh certainly in in his relationship with women, but it's a difficult area, I think. I mean, there is the infamous Playboy interview mm. uh, in 1965, where they kind of goad him into it quite, quite cleverly, I think. And they say, "Well, do you approve of bond slapping women?" He says, "Well, mm, an open hand is slap is okay if mm. if the if the male is doesn't think there's any other way of sort of settling the mm. what's going on." and unfortunately he never he never repudiated that mm-hmm. and 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 um, so it was brought up in, uh, in a 1992 interview and he was given the opportunity to say oh well, that was me in 1960 mm-hmm. and he doesn't mm-hmm. so when the obituaries came out which of course were largely laudatory and there was quite a lot circulating online about hang on you know and this guy hit, you know approves of hitting women mm-hmm. It's very difficult to read section of uh, Diane Chalento's autobiography, My Nine Lives, when she talks about him hitting her, uh, mm. and, and and she doesn't talk about an open-handed slap. Mm, she mm. talks about a punch, mm. and you think, hang on, this isn't this isn't a woman trying to get her revenge on Connery. There's sections of My Nine Lives where she talks, you know, about helping him with Bond, how much she admired him as actor, mm. all those kind of things, and how much she was in love with him. So you think. Hang on I, I kind of believe that. Mm. I kind of believe that was that was mm. true, and so so you have got this kind of dark side of connery, and I go back to this point that it doesn't seem to match the sensitivity he, he often shows in, in his mm. acting roles
0: and, and, and also, um, you know you talked about the uh, you know the, the greatest thing that he felt he'd done was to read mm. and, and he was very active in supporting. Education in Scotland mm. as well, mm. so, so he put a lot of mm. money um, mm. into. It. I mean, there's complications in terms of his relationship with Scotland because yeah, yeah, famously he yeah. he he's, he, <laughs> he's he, an um, exile he was a tax exile, yeah. supporting Scottish nationalism. And he yeah. got there was a lot of criticism yeah. for that. Yeah, but he put a lot of yeah. money, and I I think I may well have benefited actually from the trust that he set up. Oh. I think I applied in the early days, right, to get into the film business and applied for mm. some money from the trust, um, and it's there to to better people. Mm. And it's yeah. just, that's where, again, where it sits uneasy, you yeah. just, you know, you just think yeah. it's a trope associated with a particular moment in time. Yeah. And with the whole betterment side of things, you think, well, surely, you know, that would have been countered in later years. Yeah.
1: Let's dwell on the, the trust for a second, because you're right. I mean, he's the most famous SNP supporter. He gives the SNP a lot of money. Mm. He's quite instrumental, most people say, in, in helping set up. Independent Scottish Parliament, 1991. Mm -hmm. But maybe his greatest legacy in that sense is the Scottish International Education Trust, which he sets up in 1971. And he does it on the proceeds, a huge salary he's paid for coming back as Bond in Diamonds of Forever. Mm -hmm. He's paid $1.25 million, Mm -hmm. which not even Richard Burton or Elizabeth Mm -hmm. Taylor could get. And he he thinks, well, it's not about the money, it's about what i can do with that money mm. so so he sets up the trust with with that money he asked jackie stewart and some other mm. sort of scots, rich scots people to to kind of come in with him and use that initial money to leverage mm. uh, other money the scottish international education trust is still still going on so you benefited a uh, phd student i had a few years ago said oh well wow, wow i got two grants which enabled me to to, to, to be here today. Mm. So so there's a huge legacy mm. of that. And I just think it's brilliant in a sense of having your revenge on the English, on Bond, on the whole apparatus of, of cinema. You know, you think yeah. you think what I really want is that one point two five million. No, what I really want, that invest that in an educational trust for yeah. underprivileged God. Yeah, yeah, and I just yeah. think that's yeah. the whole conception is just absolutely yeah. brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, I, I think we have to leave it there. The
0: The films are going to be screening um, throughout the month. If you go to watershed.co.uk, you'll be able to find out more. And Andrew, you're giving a talk as well before the first one. And I really do recommend the book, Sean Connery, Acting, Stardom and National Identity. N- not only for a great insight into a great actor and a complex person, but also as as a, an insight into the industry and the industry changes. That were happening because of course something we didn't talk about but is the big shifts that were going on in filmmaking and in hollywood and the studios and connery was very much at the forefront of putting the actor center stage and all sort of dealings. so i really do recommend it and that's all for this month see you in the cinema